Um, let's pray together now as we come to God's Word. Our Father, we thank you for your Word, that uh, you have revealed yourself to us, and that uh, this is not just a text of things for us to believe, but they are truths about who you are. We ask that you would use your word and the ministry of Jesus uh, to show us your glory. And uh, we ask that you would uh, be our teacher, that you would send your spirit uh, to enlighten our minds to understand your word. And we ask this in Christ, in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So uh, let's read together. This is Luke chapter 9. We're going to be picking up in uh, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. Thanks Thanks be to God. So when I was in college, I went to Western. I lived right up here on Garden Street in a house with six other guys. It's a Christian house, and we'd play music and pray together and read our Bibles together. It's kind of place where we grew together, and uh, during that time that we were uh, living in this house, we had a number of uh, conversations about what are we going to do with our life, what does God want us to do, what is our calling, and one of the kind of main ideas that we have didn't really pan out too much was something called the Resurrection Project, which was we were going to start a camp uh, for troubled teens, and uh, because... We were all Christians. We wanted to have make a camp that was for troubled teens where they could come live on a farm and they could do schoolwork and learn kind of a disciplined life and, and their life could kind of transform. And because we were all Christians, we wanted this camp to be kind of a distinctly Christian camp. And so one of the challenges that as we were talking about this is um, how do you make a camp, a Christian camp? You know, what do you take some kid, some stoner kid into a farm and make him be a Christian and say, okay, you have to be a Christian now. Uh, that doesn't really work. So, so we were having a discussion about how do you, how do you integrate Christ into a program like this? And, you know, actually I hadn't really remembered this conversation, but I just talked to one of the guys a couple weeks ago, one of the guys that I lived with, and he was saying, you remember when we were having that, uh, that conversation about, about the, 
the camp we were going to have, and I was like, oh, kind of, but, and what, so what he was telling me was that we were having somewhat of a debate that um, on the one hand, we could say, well, the way that we can have Christ in this camp is we bring the kids in and we teach them, you know, better morals, how to live a better life, get their life together, and then once their life is kind of together and they're better people, then they're going to be more likely to embrace Jesus. Now, I, he was telling, I don't remember this, but as a kid who's actually been in a camp for troubled teens, I said, this plan is deeply flawed. You can't, I know from experience that doesn't work. You don't, you don't say, kid, get your life back together, and then, and then you'll, you'll understand Jesus at the end. It's because you can't get your life back together that you need Jesus. And so what my friend was saying was that he just now is realizing how true that, that is in his own life. And the way that he put it was this, is he says that orthodoxy, right thinking, always needs to precede orthopraxy, right doing. That that order is essential. That you need to believe the right things. You need to understand Jesus before your, your, the new life, the right, right ways of living are going to come out. Now, for many people in Bellingham, they say they would strongly disagree with that statement because they would say, you know, what's the big deal? Why does it matter what you believe? Isn't being a good person the things that matters? Why, what debates about believing the right thing are what causes us to be bigoted and divisive, right? So why, we, why, we, why put so much emphasis on what you believe? Let's just focus on being a good person. Now, that's very persuasive, right? But uh, there's a problem with that statement. Because that statement is a belief, right? Beliefs don't matter. Being good is what matters. Is a belief. And what you're saying is people should live out of that belief. And no matter what you do, the way that you change people is always by changing the, the things that they believe. And that's why Christians say what you believe is, is, is the thing that fundamentally matters. Now, what's interesting about this text is that uh, Jesus has disciples who left everything to follow him. So clearly they believe some things about who Jesus is. And yet, functionally, we find out in this text that they don't believe in him. That you can actually believe things in your head, certain things that uh, you assent to, I believe that. But the way you live your life, the things that you actually depend on and trust in are different. And so what we have in this text is, this is really a text that, um, about the disciples' failure. It's, a, it's a, about four episodes where the disciples are not getting it. They're not getting what they're supposed to be doing as Jesus' disciples. And we're going to see in here that there are um, basically... Uh, three, three ways that, uh, that the disciples and us, that we functionally don't trust Jesus. That we might believe this in our head, but functionally, in the way we live our lives, we don't trust him. And these are what they are. We don't trust the authority of Jesus. Um, we, don't, we don't trust the necessity of the cross. And we don't trust God's grace and our failures. Okay, those are the three we're going to look at. So, uh, under those headings, we're going to kind of... Um, work through this text. So first, we don't trust the authority of Jesus. Now at the beginning of this chapter, Luke chapter 9, which isn't printed here, it says that Jesus, uh, he's sending out his disciples, that it's time for them to have their mission, to get out as they're kind of having an internship, they're going to go practice what Jesus is preparing them to do, and it says that he gave them uh, authority and and power over all demons and to cure diseases. 
And so that's kind of an important uh, background as we come to this text, because look what it says in verse 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's an only child. And he gives this kind of detailed description of this boy's condition. And behold, the spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out and convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, which means he probably bruises him when it throws him on the ground and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now Luke, Luke's a doctor. He's a physician. So he's, he's into the, all the details of these are the symptoms that are happening in this child. Um, but if we went to Matthew and Mark's accounts, we'd also know that this kid would throw himself into fires and throw himself in the water, try to drown himself. That um, he was an epileptic. And so the, the whole picture is that this is an extreme case. So, so Jesus has said to the disciples, I, I give you uh, authority over all demons. And then now they're facing a demon that is questioning, is that true? Did, uh, did, is Jesus' word, uh, can it match? I mean, this is a severe case. And so, um, this is, so they can't cast it out. And this is how Jesus responds. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring me the Son. Uh, or bring the Son here. So Jesus re- re- rebukes his disciples here, and the reason is because of their lack of faith. Now, now what does that mean that they had lack of faith? Okay, they, they, the guy brings them this kid, he's foaming at the mouth and throwing himself in fires. And uh, what did it look like for them to not have faith when they were trying to pull, cast this demon out of the kid? Does it mean they kept saying, In the name of Jesus, come out. Okay, let's say it again. And they just kept saying it over and over. In the name of Jesus, come out. In the name of Jesus, come out. And the magic words weren't working. You know, the magic words to pull the demon out weren't working. We don't know what it is. But we know from Mark, they asked Jesus what was the problem. And Jesus says, uh, the reason is because this kind can only come out through prayer. You need to pray. And what he's saying, uh, what Jesus... Um, uh, I, what Jesus is saying, you know, often when we read a passage like this, um, about, it says that the disciples couldn't do something miraculous because they didn't have enough faith. How we understand that is that what lack of faith for us means is that they didn't have this kind of emotional confidence that uh, that if, if they, that the miraculous power is somehow tied to some feeling that they have in their heart, and if they have enough of that feeling, then the miraculous thing will happen. And if they don't have enough of that feeling, then it won't happen. Now, you know, I generally generally don't criticize other brothers and sisters in the faith, um, but I, I want to just take a moment here to kind of critique what's a very large movement in the church of the charismatic movement. Now, charismatic movement, there are many things to commend about. Uh, charismatic church. I mean, for one, they passionately love people. Uh, charismatic Christians are bold with their faith. Um, they, uh, they're strongly committed to Jesus. And, and one thing that's also kind of commendable about the charismatic movement is the sense of, of obedience to God. You know, they want to hear what God is saying and they want to do it. So I, I'm not dissing charismatic Christians. They're my brothers and sisters. But one uh, problem that comes up in a context where there's a strong emphasis on God doing miraculous powers and healings, is we put a strong emphasis that if you just believe enough, God is going to do it. Even if there's no promise in the Bible that says that 
God's going to make you rich or God's going to heal you or God's going to make you better. There's no promise. And there's this huge burden that's put on people that if, if you haven't mustered up that feeling in your heart that you really believe God, and then there's a tremendous amount of guilt that goes along with that. And so that when we think that having a lack of faith means that in my heart I didn't have enough, I didn't have enough of the emotion, that faith is not an emotion. Faith is trusting in and relying on the concrete promises of God. And, uh, and as the disciples, you know, they're, uh, they're, you know, facing this passage with a difficult case with a, de- you know, a kid that's possessed by a demon, the response, Jesus is saying you need to pray. What does praying mean? Praying means going to God and saying, God, this is what you promised. Jesus said we have authority over all demons. Now, I, actually, I don't think Jesus said that we have authority over all diseases to cure them. I, I think this is something unique that's given to the disciples. I mean, we should certainly pray, I've said before, about disease, you know, people who are sick. But this is something unique, a promise that is given to the disciples. They should have said to God, God, this is what Jesus says. And we're going to set that before you. And so the question that faces us with, of, of um, do we trust in the authority of Jesus? Do we trust in his promises? Do we know the promises of God? And do you know that God, uh, that Romans 8 says, I am sure that neither death nor life Neither angels, nor rulers, nor uh, uh, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, uh, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. That's a promise. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Or do you know that uh, Philippians 1, that, uh, that for him who has begun a good work in you, he will see it to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus. Do you know that God is that dedicated to your discipleship, to your spiritual life, that he will see it to the end? It's not you who has to see it to the end, it's him. Do you know that? Do you know Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They shall be filled. That's a promise. That if you want, I long for my life to be whole. I long to love people and to love God. Jesus says, if you hunger for that, you will be filled. God will give that to you. Or that uh, Jesus says in uh, Luke 11, you know, you, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? To have the Holy Spirit, the power of God working in us, we just simply need to ask Him. That's a promise of God. And if we're going to, uh, you know what, your emotions, the feelings in your heart of faith, guess what they're going to do? <laughs> they're going to be all over the place. But the promises of God are immovable. They are rock solid. Faith is about depending on those, not depending on our emotions. And so one of the things, that's why we, you know, one of the things just practically, we need to know them. You need to know what has God promised you. You need to memorize them. You know, I was just, yesterday I was listening to a, a, a piece on NPR's All Things Considered, and they had, uh, it was about a, uh, this uh, choir called um, Tanglewood Festival Choir, which was uh, started about 40 years ago by a 28-year-old guy who went to the Boston Symphony Orchestra and said, you know, you guys should have a permanent choir that sings with you. And the conductor said, okay, go start one. And so this 28-year-old went and gathered uh, volunteers that had been the standard choir that sings with the, you know, during this festival or throughout the year with uh, the Boston, you know, one of the greatest or- orchestras in the world. And, uh, and, you know, they were doing this piece on this, now this guy's been doing this for 40 years. He's still the, he still leads these volunteers. People have families and kids, and they, uh, they 
zealously practice to be a part of this choir, and they perform around the country. And uh, one of the things that it says is that he's he's very has very high standards. Even though they're volunteers, he has very high standards for his singers. And one of the things that he does is he requires that they memorize the music. They don't get to hold the music in front of them when they're performing, so that they're looking at the audience. And one of the things that he says is that when when these singers memorize the music, it actually becomes a part of their body. I mean, that's true, right? If they're not holding anything else, where's the music? It's in their body. It's in their brain flesh or something. You know, there are cells, there are some cells somewhere where that music is living and it's shaping them and then it's out of their bodies, out of a music that's living in them that they sing and then they sing with passion and with zeal. This exact same is true with the scriptures. When we memorize the scriptures, when we know the scriptures, it actually, God's promises become a part of our body. They live in our flesh. And then they shape us, and they change us. And, uh, and they're far more solid rock than our emotions. They're going to go up and down. So, uh, first, um, we, we don't trust the authority of Jesus largely through, we don't trust the promises that God's made through. But uh, second, we don't trust the necessity of the cross. Okay, so we don't trust the authority of Jesus, but we don't trust uh, the necessity of the cross. Now, as I was praying through this sermon, and I was thinking actually about that first point, and thinking about, you know, how do I not trust the promise of God? How do I not depend on them? Um, and seeing my own fa- unfaithfulness, uh, in the midst of that, verse 41 really struck me in a new way, where Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now he's saying this to his disciples. These are disciples that he's chosen. These are friends that he's walking with, that he's been training, that he's been pouring into. And he says to them, I can hardly bear to be with you. I mean, ouch. I mean, what? I didn't think General Jesus... I thought he liked everyone. I thought General Jesus liked everyone. And, uh, and here, um, Jesus is saying that, you know, when we don't trust God's promises, uh, when we are not depending on those, when we don't know them, it is actually offensive to God. It's unbearable to Jesus. He can hardly, it, it makes him sick. It disgusts him. And uh, that's, that, was, that was shocking to me. And so that's why in verse 43, you know, everyone's, Jesus uh, heals this child and makes them all better and the crowds are all getting excited. And then this is what it says in verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said, that, said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. It's a great line. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. While everyone is so excited about this miraculous event, Jesus sobers up his disciples by saying that he is going to have to go to the cross. He's going to have to die. This kind of sobering uh, event. Now, what is he saying? Well, basically, you know, for about this, uh, the century before Jesus lived and the century after, there were really dozens of different uh, men who kind of came forward as potential messiahs who were going to save Israel. And there was, uh, there was one guy who about 35 years after Jesus' life, his name is Simon uh, Bargiora, who uh, when the Romans in 70 AD, they were uh, attacking Jerusalem, they were going to take, take down Jerusalem. He was kind of the leader of Jerusalem and they, everyone hailed him as their savior and guardian. And, uh, and so 
when the Romans came, Titus, the son of the, uh, the Roman emperor, comes in and destroys Jerusalem. And what does he do with uh, Simon Bar-Giora, the leader, the, the hopeful savior of Israel? Is he takes him in this triumphal procession in front of this, this huge party, basically, of Romans, and uh, drags him through the streets, scourges him, which means he took this whip that has numbers of tassels and, and it basically, basically rips flesh out of your back, scourges him in front of all these cheering people, and then is publicly and shamefully executed in front of cheering Romans, and then they have a big party where they, where they uh, sacrifice to their pagan gods. And so here's a guy who uh, was a, a potential Messiah. Maybe, I don't know if he claimed to be the Messiah, the, the Savior of Israel. And he is shamefully murdered by the Romans. And uh, N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, says this about it. Imagine uh, two or three of Simon's supporters, if there were any of them left, hiding in caves or secret cellars a few days later. Supposing one said to another, actually, I think Simon really was the Messiah. The kindest view the other might take would be that the speaker had gone mad. Jewish beliefs about a coming Messiah and about the deeds such a figure would be expected to accomplish came in various shapes and sizes, but they did not include a shameful death which left the Roman Empire celebrating in its usual victory. Messiahs don't get murdered and executed by the Romans shamefully. That doesn't happen. And so that's why, you know, when Jesus says this, that the Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men, it says in verse 45, the disciples did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. So let me ask you this. How is it that Simon Bar Yora was scourged by the Romans? Jesus was scourged by the Romans. He was uh, shamefully executed by them publicly. And yet, you've never heard of him. Probably. Maybe some of you have heard of him. You've never heard of him. His movement died with him. And yet, uh, Jesus went through that same death. And yet, when he died, his movement exploded. And it exploded for the next 2,000 years. So here we are in Bellingham, Washington, in 2010, sitting here, reading about Jesus' life, worshiping him, and saying, we want to be followers of Jesus. What was the difference? Well, for one thing, Simon Gargiora, his enemy, was the Roman Empire. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus' enemy was something that was actually, in some ways, far smaller than the Roman Empire, and in some ways, way bigger. Because it says that Jesus was disgusted. He was unbearable by the faithfulness of his, his, the faithlessness of his own disciples. And so what he says is, you know what the problem... Um, uh, Jesus says to his own disciples, there is no love for, uh, or trust for God in your heart and is unbearable to me. I can hardly stand to be with you. That's what Jesus says. And you know what's amazing is that he says to them who are being unfaithful, let these words sink into your ears. What words? I'm going to go die for you. This is an amazing combination that you have, uh, that Jesus is going to go to the cross and provide an atoning sacrifice uh, for the sins of his disciples, for their unfaithfulness. So that even though they're unbearable to God, Jesus is going to be bear their unbearableness. I don't know if that's a word. Bear their unbearableness. And uh, even though they are at odds with God, Jesus is going to become at odds with God so that they be, would become at one with him. And, you know, that's what atonement means. What, how, does, how do you spell atonement? At one mint. Atonement is about making it one. 
And so here we have that we see our own lives. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at point one about trusting God's promises. And I see that God, that my unfaithfulness is unbearable to God. Jesus couldn't even stand to be with me. And yet he's gone to the cross and he's paid for it. So that now, because of Jesus' death, God looks at me and says, I am rich because I have you. I am rich. You have been bought with the precious blood of my son Jesus, and I am so rich if you are mine. That's what God says to me. So simultaneously, I am both unbearably unfaithful, and simultaneously, I am God's treasured and beloved possession. I am his. I'm his son. And when you have those two things that you hold in common, that's the way you see yourself, you hold those simultaneously, you know what it does? It deeply humbles you. It deeply humbles you, and that leads to our third point. So first, we don't trust the authority of Jesus. Second, we don't trust the necessity of the cross. But lastly, we don't trust God's grace in our failure. Now, what happens in this text, okay, you know, the, the disciples are not doing well, okay? They, uh, they don't, uh, they can cast out the demon, and then Jesus says, I'm going to need to go to the cross, and they don't get it, okay? And then this is what it says, uh, um, you know, they're sitting there saying, I don't get what he's talking about. And then it says this, uh, and an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Okay, so they're sitting around, they, they can't cast out the demon, they're saying, do you get the thing about the get, you know, being delivered over in the hands of men? And then, very quickly, the conversation, this is kind of typical male fashion, changes to, so which one of us do you think is the best? <laughs> you know, which one of us is the best? Uh, what? Is that a joke? This is this is probably the point. This is the point in the whole gospel, except for when they uh, abandoned Jesus at his arrest. This is the point in the gospel when the disciples are failing the most, and they get into a debate about who is the greatest. And uh, it's ridiculous. And yet, there's something deeply profound here, because um, many of us know that in our flesh. Um, we are deeply fearful that we might feel like a failure. And it is when we are most fearing uh, that we're failing that that's when we begin to put on a facade that I am, I am great, I have everything together. It's out of that fear that we do that. And that's exactly what you see the disciples doing. They are failing and they begin to argue with one another about who is the greatest. And, uh, you know, whenever we do that, Whenever uh, we are fearing, we're uncomfortable, we're not trusting God's grace in our failure, and we want to defend ourselves and protect ourselves, it always separates us from other people. It says that they were arguing with one another. And then in the next passage, it turns out there's these other disciples who are going and casting out demons in Jesus' names, and John says, hey, we tried to stop him because he wasn't one of us. You see what that does? Is when they're failing and they're fearing, the two things they do is they begin to pretend like they're great and say how great they are, and they make a click. They say Jesus 12 are, you know, they're not part of Jesus 12. So we should stop them from being, being, uh, doing Jesus' ministry. And Jesus says, listen, if they're not against you, they're for you. They're on, your, they're on the same team. They love Jesus and they're, and they're doing my work. What are you, why are you stopping them? And it's because, uh, it's because of their insecurity that they're trying to convince people of how great they are. And let me just tell you that if we're going to be a family as a church... We are going to have to resist this temptation to say when we feel like uh, we're failing, we're not sure about ourselves, are we going to put up defenses and it's going to, is this going to frack, pull us apart, the temptation to say how great we are and the temptation to make clicks? 
But uh, what this text, um, uh, the way that Jesus says that we need to fight this comes in verse 48. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. You see what Jesus is doing? He's telling the disciples, you've got to look at the cross. Because what the cross says is that you're unbearably uh, unfaithful to God. You cannot possibly think that you're great. And yet, in the cross, God has loved you freely. He's wiped away all of your sin. And what that does is that makes you the kind of person who says, I don't have to pretend that I'm great. And look at how God has embraced me. I'm going to have to shatter clicks. I'm going to have to shatter clicks because uh, that's what God's done for me. He hasn't, he hasn't kept his relationship to himself. He's shattered it to welcome me in. And then what the cross also says is that our, our Lord, our shepherd, our leader, what does he do? He becomes a servant. He doesn't say he doesn't make him try to make himself greater than people. He puts himself below people, and he and so what that means for us is for us to follow Christ is to esteem others better than ourselves, to esteem one another better than ourselves. And the only way we're going to do that is we look at the cross, and the only way uh, we're going to do that is if we're willing uh, to trust the authority of Jesus and His promises to us. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would challenge our hearts. Lord, would we uh, put down our defenses, our claims of greatness? Would we see the necessity that Jesus needed to die for our unfaithfulness? Because otherwise, Lord, we are unbearable to you. And we pray that in so doing, you would make us into a family. A family that is warm, loving, humble, and clings to the cross, follows the way of the cross, that we would esteem one another better than ourselves, that we would be patient and gentle and joyful and compassionate. Would you work all of these things through us, through our faith in Christ? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.